Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. So we're reading from Ruth chapter 4. Um, we're reading the whole chapter. So let's dive in. Here we go. Um, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You, you redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses, that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are, my, you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring of the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave, she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous for our Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in, all your, in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. For Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, the genealogy of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Wow. 
James, uh, well done. The people respect you. Your first reading, I think, was it? Your first reading. To get a, a genealogy in your first reading is, is surely bad luck. But you navigated that with good grace. I thought the way you said Ephratha was just perfect. And um, as well, the Aminadab, well navigated. Let's pray. Oh, God. Lord, we ask that as we interrogate the Scripture and as we interrogate and allow it to interrogate our hearts, you would bring about a shift, shift in the seasons for this church, a shift in the seasons for the church in this nation, a calling up and in and on And when all about seems to be crumbling, we are reminded that you are the safe foundation. You are the safe harbor. You are a refuge in a storm. You are the God of ages past. You are the one who was and is and is to come. Establish your kingdom in this room today. Establish your kingdom in this city today. Establish your kingdom in this nation today. Amen. Amen. Uh, This week, as is uh, my habit, I wrote my sermon on Thursday. I I spent a a number of hours. may surprise you to know I spend a number of hours on this. I do. I work hard on this. It's a, a privilege to stand here and speak to you, to preach to you. And so I worked harder. It wasn't the only hours I spent in it. I think about what I'm going to say almost constantly in the week or weeks leading up to speaking. Uh, but I did, I did something that, I'm, I'm, honestly, my, my father does fairly regular. I don't think he'd mind me saying you that, uh, telling you that. But I really very, very uh, rarely do. And I somehow managed in the melee of, of life and children and all the other stuff that goes on in our home, I managed to lose, actually, di- not physically, but digitally lose my sermon. And having spent a few hours on it, I was a bit miffed, to be honest with you. And uh, I didn't say anything that I would uh, regret or uh, rely on in court. <laughs> Uh, I didn't say anything I would regret, but I was just a bit upset about it because I knew then that that would mean having to rewrite the thing out, and I'd already written it, and, and it's, you know, it was one of those moments. But I kept myself together, and I just thought, okay, well, that's Saturday afternoon. That's what I'll be doing. And on the morning, Saturday morning, uh, just before I went to see uh, these two boys and others play football for the West Bridgeford Colts, uh, they won 5-2, for those that are interested in the first game of their particular season, just before I went to do that, I, I, went, a ru- I went on a run, because you know, I run. <laughs> yeah, 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 I do that every so often. And I went for a run, and I, I just, <laughs> as I was running down by the river, my dog, and, you know, just expressing my virtue to you this morning. As I was doing that, I just sensed the Holy Spirit whisper to me, Johnny, think again. Think again. And so rather than spending Saturday afternoon rewriting what I'd written, uh, which I'd been dwelling on for, for days in advance and even weeks, I thought again. 
And I find it easy or easier to think while on the move. So as I was running, I, I thought. And so I present to you an updated version, Mark 2, at least Mark 2, of what uh, I uh, was going to say. And, and I do this this morning, honestly, with a certain amount of fear and trembling. Not because I'm bothered about what you think about my preaching. I presume if you, if you come here and you've been here, I've got enough credit in the bank. If you're still here then you can tolerate it. Uh, not because you can't handle a dud week or because I can't handle a dud week, but I just believe that at this moment there is so much at stake. There's so much at stake for us as a nation and as a church. And I, I want to caveat what, everything I'm about to say by just a, certain, uh, just a note of humility, just to say I'm a human being. I could be wrong. The, the, yeah, Tom Wright, a great theologian, used to sit before his students at Oxford University and he would sit before them in his supervision and he said, look, a third of what I'm about to tell you is wrong. The problem is I don't know which third. And let's just have that caveat laid before us uh, even as I begin. It is open to error. Uh, of course, everything that any human being says is, but it is of great significance, I believe, because I do think and I deeply feel that we are in a point of history that we will look back on and say that was a hinge point. That was a, that was a hinge point in, in where our nation is headed and uh, where we are headed as a church. We are at a crisis moment. And the word here, you've heard the word crisis in the media. The word crisis comes from a Greek word, and the word is krinein. And that word means to judge. It means to judge or to decide. And I believe that we are at a moment of judgment, judgment, revelation of, uh, of, of things being made clear, and also at a great moment of decision. We're seeing that politically. We are at a moment of crisis politically, locally. Uh, you may have seen in the news just recently, our child services uh, in this particular city had an Ofsted and failed that Ofsted dramatically. I think we need to be praying for our child services. We need to be considering whether we, sh- we are being called to play a part, whether we've been called to foster and adopt. We, are, we need as the church to play a role in that. But we're seeing that. There's a moment of crisis in that area at the moment, and not just that area. We're seeing nationally a local governments, uh, city councils going bust with no money to do basic things. We're seeing crisis nationally. I- I'm not having a go at any particular government because I'm not really confident in, in any political option at the moment. Uh, but we, we are honestly, for a period there, we were the laughing stock of the world. Globally, in, in Europe, we're seeing war return. We have seen, we, we are now in a position where war has returned to Europe. Not Syria, not the bit beyond Europe that we can kind of forget about because it's not on our back door. No, in Europe. And many of us thought we'd never see this. We thought World War II was the end of that. But no, we are seeing that. And you can each come up with a catastrophic scenario from this point, and I don't encourage you to do so. I'm just saying that this is a moment of crisis for, for Europe. Politically, we, we cannot any longer assume that the system of government, I'm not talking about particular government parties of government, I'm talking about now the system of government that we have become used to 
uh, democracy in our case, we cannot assume that this is the way, that this is the system of government we will see forever on. Recently, April 22, uh, a survey was published where young people, 18 to 24 year olds, were asked what confidence they had in democracy per se. 19% of that group of 18 to 24s thought it works well. 55% said they thought it was working badly. It wasn't working for them. Now, that could be a kind of thing you say when you're annoyed and somebody asks you a question in the street. We need to take that, hold that, you know, loosely and lightly. But I just think we need to be realistic about the gravity of the moment that we're in. Economically, and this follows on in many ways from the political situation, we are economically in a point of strife. I don't need to tell you. You yourselves are paying your heating bills. You may well not, like us, have turned your heating on just yet. But we are living through a time of great crisis economically. And I believe and I fear these are only the early tremors, the early signs. And we see this manifest in our institutions. Great institutions are, are creaking, are creaking. Things that we had relied upon, that had become the support in our national conversation, are creaking. We, own, we all know this. If you've had an experience, and I'm not being critical, please don't hear my, hear my heart in this. If you've had an experience with the NHS recently, you know that the NHS is not on the brink of, but it is in the midst of a profound crisis. A profound crisis. That is not a criticism. That is just a, a plain fact. Our schools would be uh, another, another area where we're just seeing profound stretching and crisis. And God bless you if you're involved in ministering kingdom work in those institutions. We need you and we are praying for you. And then we look at the church. And what we see is exactly the same thing. The church in England, and maybe particularly the church of England, is in the midst of a profound crisis of identity right now. And at stake is the question, a decision, a crinane, a decision, about what kind of church we are going to be and what our relationship should be and will be to the culture at large. And I don't believe I'm overstating it. I could be wrong. I don't believe I'm overstating it when I say that the decisions that are made from this point will determine the kind of and even the existence of the church of England from this point in. Not the church in England. I'm so confident about the church in England because Jesus has already given his view on that. The gates of hell will not overcome the church in England. And I think, honestly, this moment of crisis for many of us has come, and this is perhaps the most... This is probably the area I think we need to do most introspection. Because I think for many of us in our culture, for many of us in the church, this crisis has come as a shock. And that suggests to me that we've been doing too much reading of the culture and not enough reading of the scripture. Because the stability of the world since World War II, and the stability of Europe, not the world, since World War II, has led us to believe that we'd arrived at something approximating the kingdom of God. And we'd ceased to believe, we'd ceased to understand, we'd forgotten that the only way to see the kingdom of God come is by a new creative act through the power of God. 
We believe the secular myth, and that myth is the myth of the Enlightenment, which is the myth of progress. That if we just have enough technology, enough wisdom, enough human wisdom, enough scientific endeavor, we will arrive at a moment of perfection in history. You know, when the Berlin Wall fell down, a historian, sociologist, Francis Fukuyama, wrote uh, an essay called The End of History. He believed that history as we knew it had ended, and that what was then going to happen would just be a process, uh, an idyllic process towards some kind of nirvana in history. A profoundly different story to the story that the Bible tells. Jesus says, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And I'm here to say this to you today, that those of us who are going to be ready to play our part as the church, in this moment, we'll need to find a new foundation and a new basis on which to do that, which is, in fact, the old way. There is an opportunity here in this crisis. I am so hopeful. I am so excited I am terrified and excited. But the days of armchair Christianity are over. Over. Gone. How do we proceed? If I'm right, if a third, if a third of what I've just told you is right, take it to Jesus. Have a conversation with him about it. But if I'm right, how do we proceed? Well, I think we can find some answers to these questions in the book of Ruth. Week one of this brief tour through the book of Ruth breaks down into four chapters. We looked at the upside-down power of self-emptying. Week two, we looked at the upside-down power of trusting God in that gap. A brilliant way to conceive of the life that we're talking about. Week three, last week, we looked at the upside-down power of redemption, that God works to bring the outsiders into the middle transforms and redeems his world in that way. And this week, we are looking at the upside-down power. And I renamed my sermon since I wrote that this morning. The upside-down power of friendship. Ruth 4. Now, what's the context of Ruth? What's the context? The context we see in chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. In the days where the judges ruled. Many of you who've read scripture, you've read, maybe you do the Bible in a year. And if you have never done that, let me encourage you. Because in these days, you will need to know scripture like never before. But in uh, the time of judges, what Israel was facing was a moment of just sustained crisis. Crisis was the norm. And one of the key definitions of the crisis was just political and economic chaos. And what was fascinating about that time is that it was a leaderless time. They couldn't find a leader. They couldn't uh, find a leader to come and, and take care of it. Every so often they would cry out and God would raise a leader up. Usually it was a very surprising kind of leader. Somebody like Gideon, the least in their tribe. Somebody like Samson who had to grow his hair long to be strong. Or somebody like Deborah, a woman who led the army out. One good leader a generation, called in weakness, called from weakness, usually with a key weakness. And God raised that leader up and delivered his people. This was the context of the time of judges. It was a chaos time. It was a time like this time. It was a moment like this 
moment. And that should give you pause for encouragement this morning because the thing for the church, the thing we need to hear this morning is we've been here before. We've been here before. We've been here before. This story, the story of our world now, sits alongside this story, this Ruth story. In a time of disaster, God was working, God is working, and he is working, and he was working in a most unusual way. So here's what we read, chapter 4. Meanwhile, meanwhile, meaning following on from what Beth spoke to us about last week, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. So Boaz, the, one of the heroes, one of the three heroes of our story, uh, has a plan. The plan has been given to him really by Ruth, his, his suitor, his prospective wife, and she was given the plan by Naomi, her mother-in-law. So here we have a plan, two degrees of separation, and Boaz, uh, with this plan to marry this woman, goes to the town gate. Why the gate? Well, he goes to the gate because this is the place of commerce. The town gate would be uh, connected to a town square, a public square, and all the legal business would happen in this, moment, in this place. And it would also be the place where if you were coming in or out of the town, you would have to pass through it. So he goes there with confidence that the other guardian redeemer with whom he has to have a business conversation will have to pass this place. And also knowing that the elders of the town will be there, so when the business deal comes to be done, they'll be able to work on the deal together. What we find is that he invites the guardian redeemer to sit down, and the guardian redeemer sits down. He invites the elders to sit down, and they sit down. All of this indicates Boaz's good standing in that town. We read on. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then, verse 3, he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling this piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention. Okay, Naomi, uh, this key figure who really begins the story, is now in charge of this piece of land. She's in charge of this piece of land because her husband died. But then the land would have passed to one of her two sons, one son and then the other son, but they both died in sequence. And so Naomi is now the possessor of this land. She wants to sell this land. This is her ingenious trick to get her daughter-in-law Ruth married. And so Boaz goes and says, look, there's a piece of land Naomi's looking to sell. You as the guardian redeemer are first in line. Would you like to buy this piece of land? Would you like to enlarge your territory? Would you like to prosper your future generations? It's a no-brainer. He leaves out, note how Boaz leaves out the specific piece of information which would be pertinent to the deal, that in order to buy the piece of land, he then has to marry the lady, Ruth. Clever boy. He says, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention. I love that turn of phrase. And suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here. And in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so that I will know. For no one else has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. Boaz, playing along with the plan, begins by mentioning the land, as I said, leaving Ruth out of the story. The kinsman, the first guardian redeemer, says, Of course I'm going to buy it. Come on, let's do this. Get your sandal off, son. I will redeem it, he said. 
But I think uh, that's what he meant. I will redeem it. The kinsman redeemer at this point only knows about Naomi. He's thinking, gosh, this is a no-brainer. This is a win-win. Let's take that. Let's increase my prosperity and my children will receive this. There's no one else in line for this. This won't have to pass back to anyone else. I can secure Elimelech's property for myself forever. And then... Boaz gives him the second half of the deal. Then Boaz said, verse 5, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Once an in-principle agreement has been made, before the deal has been shaken on by the exchange of sandals, what a wonderful thing to do. Boaz drops in the fact that the buyer will have to also acquire a wife and will have the responsibility, this is important to get this, to then continue on the name of that dead man's children. That means that any children which come from that marriage, the, the land would then pass to them. So in other words, the, 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 the no-named guardian redeemer, the guardian redeemer is never named. The no-named uh, guardian redeemer would not have any land for himself or for his children. He'd be doing a heck of a lot of work for no good. Now what's fascinating here is that Boaz adds in this phrase, not just Ruth, but he says Ruth the Moabite. Now Beth said to us last week, it's really important to get this, that uh, in adding the Moabite, uh, Boaz is almost doing the opposite of sweetening the deal. He's salting the deal. Is that a thing? I don't know. This is what one uh, commentator said, for biblical Israel... Moab is an extreme negative case of a foreign people, a perennial enemy. Its origins, according to the story of Lot's daughter in Genesis 19, are in an act of incest. The Torah actually bans any sort of intercourse, social, cultic, worship, or sexual with the Moabites. These were personas non grata. These are people you did not hang out with. These were people who were considered untouchable. Think now of Jesus' teaching on the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. That's how you need to conceive of the Moabites, basically untouchable. So by saying Ruth the Moabite is going to be your wife if you do this deal, Boaz knows what he's doing. And of course then the man says, well, I cannot redeem it. Because I might endanger my own estate. Literally speaking, in the, in the original language, that's spoil my own estate. What's he saying? Well, is this an economic point he's making? In other words, this isn't good economically. It's not a good business deal for, for me. Is, is he here speaking about just the fact that it's going to cost him a lot of effort for no good? Possibly. Is there a hint of racism here? I think very Possibly. Maybe he simply fears that the same thing that happened to everyone else who's male and connected to Naomi, i.e. they died, will also happen to him. A bit of superstition, perhaps. Well, then Boaz, listen to this, announced. He got on his soapbox. Sandals at the ready. Boaz announced to the elders and the people. Where are we? There we go, verse 9. Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Marlon, I have also acquired. Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property 
so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. It reads like a marriage ceremony, doesn't it? Notice how Boaz does the reverse of the no-name guardian redeemer. And this is maybe why his name is recorded. While the guardian redeemer is put off by the phrase Ruth the Moabite, here Boaz announces those three words as a point of pride. I have acquired Ruth the Moabite as my wife. Again, Robert Alter says, if this national epithet, this name, put off the kinsman, Boaz, on his part, unambiguously affirms his readiness to marry the foreign woman. And what we see just really quickly, as we bring this kind of scripture portion of our message to a close, the elders and the people surrounding say, we are witnesses. And almost as if they can't help themselves, they break out into blessing. They bless what everyone else is considered to be unblessed. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whose Tamar bore to Judah. Look, a blessing. The blessing, and this blessing transforms Ruth from a no-name, from a foreigner, into an adopted matriarch. She becomes a mother in Israel. They say, do worthy things in Ephrathah and proclaim a name in Bethlehem. Can you think of a name proclaimed in Bethlehem? Yeshua, Jesus. This blessing is manifest not only in King David, whose genealogy we hear at the end, but in Jesus Christ. This blessing is resounding down to this day, to this moment, as Jesus is proclaimed in this place. An answer to the blessing that these elders, a name, a name. And of course, Naomi doesn't miss out. She too is blessed. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. The women say, the women say, the women said to Naomi, this story began with three women who all lost their husbands. It continued on with unfailing loyalty between two women. And when these women returned to Bethlehem, these two women, they were greeted by a horde of astonished and gossiping women. Now those same women become the chorus to celebrate the birth of Naomi's grandchild, who she cares for like she is, he is her very own. That's your Bible, folks. So what? Remember the context of this book. At a time of great difficulty, at a time of famine, a time of, of death, a time of great political uncertainty, a time of uh, a crisis of leadership, economic ruin, at that time, the redemptive plan of God was not stalling, but gathering pace, gathering pace, not easing off, but moving forward, breaking in. The kingdom at that moment was breaking in and breaking forth. This is the message of Ruth. God does not grow weary in the chaos. He is not shocked. He is not surprised. He never believed the Enlightenment myth, after all. 
He's read his Bible. He's moving in the instability. He's working in this moment. The, the situation of chaos creates inroads for the inbreaking of his kingdom. And his people are blessed, will be blessed in this time, though in strange ways. The question the book of Ruth raises for us, I think, is this. Will we be involved as God works out his strange plan? Will we be involved? Will we see it? Will we play our part in it? Let's be clear. God can reach for the Moabites. God can raise up an army to praise him out of the stones that this building is comprised of. Indeed, he's already beginning to do it. We've heard extraordinary and wonderful reports of what God has been doing on our youth weekend away. Filling young people with with his spirit, raising up worshippers from among the younger generations. We are seeing nationally, we've been praying for a revival. Lord, give us a generation of revivalists. What if it's happening in our midst? We've been praying for revival in this nation. And nationally, we see refugees filling our churches. We are delighted to have some of our Iranian brothers and sisters already in our church. We have been honored to serve some of the Afghani refugees just uh, moments from this building. My friend Andy leads a church with his wife Dizzy, one of, some of our closest friends. This is where we stole uh, Beth and Luke from uh, just not long ago. And uh, th- their church has doubled in size uh, recently. And they're having problems with it because they, their, their building is completely full. And the, the, the people responsible for this doubling in size are all Iranian refugees. And some of this group walk 40 minutes to and from church every five times a week for every single thing that happens in church. And Andy and Dizzy have said well, to, to their leaders, should we do another Sunday service? And the leader said there's no point because they'll come to that as well. That's a revival. People walking 40 minutes to church. The question is not, well, will God do it, but will we, a part, will we be a part of it? You know, we struggle to get Western Christians to commit to coming to church once a week. The question isn't, is, is God going to do it? The question is, are we going to see it? Are we going to be there? Are we going to be among it? How might we be among it? Without question, the central moment in the drama of Ruth takes place in chapter 1, verse 16. Where you go, Ruth says, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Did you know the name Ruth means friend? Ruth binds herself to Naomi. Binds herself to Naomi and Naomi's God in friendship. Just as later, Boaz binds himself to Ruth. And both acts are a powerful statement of love and loyalty. 
And this friendship, love, loyalty describes the posture we are going to need as the church in coming days. Have you bound yourself to Jesus Christ? Have you bound yourself to him? Bound yourself. Are you bound to him? Not do you believe in him? Are you bound to him? Have you said, whatever comes, whatever it looks like to be shaken, whatever rejection it might mean for me, whatever bad report be given about me, whatever gossip surround or, or scandal be made up about me, I am with Jesus and his people, come what may. I am his and he is mine. My beloved is his. Uh, my, I am my beloved's and he is mine. Did you know that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him? Psalm 25 verse 14. Now is the time to pray for a new kind of friendship born of fear of the Lord. Respect and honor and reverence for him. Because everything is being shaken and everything will be shaken. And only what is rooted and founded in him will stand. The temptation will be in these days to lessen the tension, to avoid the difficulty, to lower the requirement for holiness. But to be a Christian is to walk in the way of Jesus, whatever the cost, whatever it takes, and wherever it leads. And there will be a cost. And it is necessary, we understand that. It's not my job to persuade you of that. It is my job to preach the full counsel of God to you. There is and there never has been such a thing as cost-free Christianity. But there is a promise to those willing to pay that price. Isaiah 56 verses 4 and 5. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast, who cling to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name like Boaz, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Amen. Let's pray.